The scripture reading today is taken from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, which can be found on page 1050 of your Red Pew Bibles. That's John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. The third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, famously constructed a religious work entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. This is more commonly referred to as the Jefferson Bible. In this work, what Jefferson did is he took two copies of the New Testament and carefully, with scissors and a razor, he cut out and pasted all the moral precepts of Jesus, all the sayings of Jesus, which he found to be, quote, as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. But he was careful to rid it of everything that he viewed as nonsense, what I suppose was this dunghill, any question of Jesus' deity, all the miracles, and most references to the supernatural of any sort, all God just the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Only Jesus, the wise and moral teacher, remained. Jefferson, of course, was a product of his time. He was shaped by the enlightenment of the 18th century. It was a world of new ideas, and to suppose that Jesus was divine was just as absurd as to suppose that some men, king, had the divine right to rule. To believe that such things as the miraculous existed undermine this new and firm belief in the scientific process, that in order to be verifiable, to be true, to be believed, something must be able to be reproducible. There could be no reproduction of these miracles of Jesus. They were no more than fables in his mind. Jefferson's not alone. We, too, are products of our time. 
more than simply formed by the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, we have been formed as well by the modern era, by philosophers like Nietzsche, who names that God is dead, that not only has the Enlightenment happened, but the world has realized that it has taken with it any possibility for God's existence. We see this culturally as we're in an increasingly post-Christian era and the narratives of the Bible are viewed more and more as Jefferson viewed them. Myth and legend, morality tale at best, and at worst a way for clergy and rulers to just control the masses. But we are also a postmodern people, a people who are tentatively open again to mystery and to the mystical. People today are on spiritual journeys again, but often suspicious of miracles. We've seen one too many faith healer on TV. We've heard one too many stories of prayers unanswered. And so I think that we together are in a fairly unique place when we read stories like these stories of the miracles of Jesus. Because we're skeptics but we're skeptics who long to believe in something more than all we've ever experienced and known. We're believers, but we're believers without any clear direction or sense of what we ought to believe in. And we have these incredible, marvelous stories handed to us, passed down to us from generations of Christians, recorded in the first writings of who Jesus was and what he was doing in this world. At our church, We believe in the miracle-working power of God. And we want to be a church that not only entertains the possibility that Jesus did these things all those years ago, but that perhaps God is still doing miraculous things today as well. That if we really believe in a God that is present, a God that's with us and cares about us, then we also need to believe in a God that acts and that intervenes. Because I think apathy is an awful way to show concern, right? If God cares but doesn't get involved, does he care at all? And so we're trying to form ourselves in these beliefs despite all the history and culture and stories that tell us what we should believe and what we should question. In order to do that, we're going to spend the next several weeks exploring the miracles of Jesus together to consider what these miracles teach us about who God is, what they teach us about what God is doing in our world, and how they invite us to be people who live deeper lives of faith. So we begin in Cana, in Galilee. We begin with the story of a wedding feast. And as we heard read for us, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It might seem like this miracle is a strange one to begin with as we kick off this series, but it's also the strange one that Jesus began with. So maybe it's a good place to start after all. It's the first of his signs. And notice that John says more than a party trick, more than a tremendous divine favor, that this action is a sign that reveals Jesus' glory that this action reveals something about who Jesus is and that that inspires the belief of his disciples. This is why this miracle, this story, is often read at this time of year, at Epiphany, because it offers to us an epiphany, a revelation of who Jesus really is, more than a child in a manger, 
somebody who's showing us the very care and concern of our God. John the Evangelist seems to suggest that we're on the right track if we're looking at miracles to learn about God and to deepen our faith. Because it is in these signs that Jesus' glory is revealed so that we might believe. So what happens? How does Jesus reveal his glory? It begins with Jesus' mother coming up to him with a request. And it sounds like a strange request because all she says is they've run out of wine. But we know this kind of request, don't we? It's like when Margaret tells me the garbage is full, right? There's a request attached. It's just not maybe immediately obvious. So knowing the request, Jesus responds, Woman, what concern is that to me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus says, what concern is that to me? And we answer him in our minds. And we say, well, it's not. It's not your concern, Jesus. You're a guest at this wedding. It's not your concern, God. There's a Roman occupation happening right outside, and the Pharisees are taking advantage of widows. It's not your concern. You have bigger things to worry about. Don't worry about this. I'm sure that those disciples who were with Jesus answered this question the same way that we so often do. It was the bridegroom's responsibility to prepare for this feast. He would have had years to save up for it, and to run out of wine, it would have shamed him. But that's not Jesus' problem. It's the groom's mistake. Interestingly, this is not apparently what Mary, the mother of Jesus, answers as she hears Jesus' question in her mind. Mary hears something that we don't hear. Mary knows that Jesus is the Son of God. She knows firsthand what God is capable of, and she has the best grasp of anyone about what actually concerns Jesus, because she says to the servants to do whatever Jesus instructs them to do. She trusts that Jesus is concerned about the wine at this wedding, She has faith that God who comes in the flesh cares about the small things that maybe actually aren't that small at all. She knows that this is the very reason why Jesus came to us. In our day-to-day lives, I think that this assumption that Jesus doesn't care about the wine, that God has bigger things on God's plate, is really quite prevalent for us and for the people around us. We don't want to bother God with the little things, with that faint pain in our knees, the little argument we had with somebody the other day, the class that we're just not enjoying in school, our own troubles and uncertainties. We imagine that Jesus will ask us that same question. What concern is that to me? What concern is that pain in your knee when Christians around the world are being persecuted for their faith? What concern is this little thing when protests rage in Hong Kong, fires burn in Australia, Iranians and Canadians weep together at a tragic loss of life? Why are you worried about these little things? Why should I be worried about them? This is how we imagine that Jesus will respond to us. We assume that like us, God has to prioritize what he's concerned about. And so we don't want to bring these little things, simple things like running out of wine at a wedding. I hope you see that already this dialogue between Mary and Jesus 
should make us question our own minds and our own hearts because the things that we expected about Jesus, the things that we guess about God, maybe those things aren't true after all. Maybe the way that we expect God to work in the world is a whole lot smaller than the way that God actually works in the world. Because it seems like Jesus cares about the wine. God cares about even the things that don't seem of the gravest consequence in our life or in the world. This miracle is a miracle that shows us that God is interested and involved in the mundane and the everyday that God will intervene in the things that we care enough to bring to him because God cares for us. So Jesus cares. And what does he do next? He instructs the servants to fill those six stone water jars with water, to draw some of the water out and to bring it to the master of the banquet. And it says they did so. But I want you to notice that so far there's no miracle. Fill the jars with water, draw some water out, bring the water to the master of the banquet. Nothing's happened. Nothing happens, in fact, even as the story continues in incredibly suspenseful writing by saying, and the master of the banquet tasted. The story tells us the master of the banquet tasted before it tells us the water had become wine. He tasted the water that had become wine. Unlike many other miracles, we have no clue offered as to how this was done. Jesus doesn't like stick his hand in the jars. There are no magic words spoken as the servants are walking. Jesus simply gives instructions and the miraculous unfolds. In obedience, it seems like the servants become partners with Jesus in doing the impossible. When the master of the banquet doesn't know where the wine came from, The text is quick to remind us that the servants who had drawn the water know. The servants know. They were part of this miracle. And it seems like a stretch for us who are cautious of anything that we can't test, reticent to believe anything that we haven't already experienced. It seems absurd that we're not only asked to believe in the impossible, but to participate in it. Is it so impossible that water becomes wine? C.S. Lewis, in his writings on miracles, there's a quote in the first pages of your bulletins about this. He talks about how God's making wine all the time. In the creation of grapes and the sending of rain, God is turning water into wine year after year. The idea that water can somehow, through a process, become wine is not that absurd to us. It doesn't actually seem that unnatural. It's the fact that it's such a convenient solution to this problem. That's what seems unnatural to us. Because we're used to stories that don't end nearly this well. Our experience of the world is that stories don't go go from bad to suddenly good, but they go from bad to far worse. That seems like the natural order of our world. It's not that we don't believe water can become wine. It's not that we don't believe that a creator God can turn water into wine. These things, they're not what surprise us. Perhaps it's actually more that we don't believe that such happy endings are possible in our world. 
We don't believe that there's anything better than what we already know and experience all the time. We don't believe that there should be any cause for God to intervene in a story that really doesn't sound that uncommon. And it doesn't seem that problematic. And it's really not that troublesome at all. We've experienced bitter things in our lives. We know bitter stories. And the thing offered in this story, it's joyous. A wedding that's headed for shame is saved miraculously. But isn't it a more natural thing that weddings should end in joy rather than shame? I think it is. I think that's the natural order of the world. That's the way things should be. Weddings should end on a good note. They shouldn't end in shame for the bride and groom. God intervenes in this story. But God intervenes not to contravene the natural order of the world. Rather, God intervenes to save it, to preserve it, to set it right again. God intervenes and invites us to believe that there can be better ends to the stories that we are involved with as well. That every situation where fear and pain and darkness play freely in God's creation is in fact an unnatural situation that God wishes to restore to a far better state of flourishing life. And that we get to be part of how God does that work. We get to be a part of how God does that work as we, like Mary, we see trouble on the horizon and we name it and we bring it to God, expecting that Jesus does care. We get to be a part of how God sets all things right as we heed the wise words of Mary to do whatever he tells us. And in obedience, we obey even the most curious promptings of the Holy Spirit in order to set the stage for God to bring his kingdom one step closer to a situation, a little more present to a person. We become participants in the miraculous. We don't become participants in the impossible. We don't become participants in the unnatural. But we become participants in the making right again of every kind of thing so that the natural order of God's kingdom can show itself once more. Does that make sense? We're not participants in the unnatural. We're participants in the making right again, in the revealing of the nature of God's kingdom, that God's kingdom would be more known and more fully experienced. So when the water that we now know had become wine makes it to the steward of the feast, he remarks, everyone serves the good wine first. And then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. And that makes sense to us. There's no reason to start with bad wine, let people get drunk on that, and then serve good wine when nobody can tell the difference anymore. Right? The way things were is the way things still make sense to us. In fact, that's more than likely what the groom had already done. The groom had probably put the good wine out, run out of that, brought out the bad wine, run out of that, And now there's no wine at all. And Jesus produces good wine that's better than even that first good wine. And this emphasis is incredibly unique. Because when Jesus feeds the 5,000, we don't read about anybody who left that hillside and was thinking to themselves, you know, 
that was the best bread and the best fish I've ever had. That's not the miracle in that story. The miracle here is not simply that water became wine, but that it became good wine, that it became the best wine. Jesus provides the good wine, and he provides it last. In a world of quick fixes and instant gratification, this idea too is one of a world turned on its head. Because it's a sign that the world isn't going to hell in a handbasket despite what everything else would have us believe. It's a sign that things will continue to get better. That God is acting in our best interests and his promises are trustworthy. That he offers us far more than we hope or expect and is generous beyond all reason because he cares for us. I've often thought about how weddings are so often referred to as the best day in a couple's lives. Right? You've heard that. You've maybe said that. And I've thought about how depressing that is. Right? That's awful. I have so many more years of life to live, and if the best day of my life was a year and a few months ago, that's rough. Rather, it should be the best day as of yet, with the sure and certain hope that there are many better days on the horizon that there's a feast of goodness yet to come, that there's good wine left to be enjoyed and good company to be experienced, that God has better things in store still. This is not dissimilar to our temptation to believe that our best days are behind us, individually and corporately, that our biggest accomplishments have been achieved, that our church's greatest stories have already been told, But the miracle by which Jesus first revealed his glory is a miracle in which the best is saved for last, where the good wine is offered as a sign of the good life that is yet to come. Maybe you've heard that this year our church is celebrating its 200th anniversary. And in those 200 years, there have been some incredible stories of God's faithfulness and power in our community. There has been some good wine already enjoyed. But the glory of God is that God's kingdom isn't in decline. Rather, it's still coming in its fullness. That there are better things yet to anticipate. The good news of our God's kingdom is that our church didn't peak at about 150 years and then it's just been like muddling along ever since. This miracle invites us to imagine that the best years are still ahead of us. That maybe it's taken 200 years for our church to become what it is today and for God to use this thing that we are now for the still better things that God has in store. If we had fulfilled God's purpose for us in this community, I think we would have moved on, right? We wouldn't be here anymore but we're still here at the corner of Harvard and Spadina. And that tells me that maybe there's still good wine and good promises and good company to enjoy yet in this place and in this neighborhood in the years that are still to come, even in this new year of 2020. Because this is what Jesus' ministry is about. Jesus' ministry and the eventual reconciliation of all things are described consistently as a wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
What we see at this wedding in Cana of Galilee is that Jesus understands what weddings need. He understands that at a wedding, even the little things need to go right. That everyone present makes it the joyous thing that it ought to be. And that the very best things, they should come at the end. Indeed, as we anticipate the culmination of the great wedding feast of the Lamb, we should remember that Jesus has saved the best wine for last. When it was easy to believe that God wasn't concerned, when it was natural for us to be pessimistic and believe that things would only get worse from here, God himself took on flesh to bring his glory into our world and into our lives, to reveal to us that he is still at work in us, and through us into this community and into our world that is being transformed as for a wedding feast. Dear friends, be assured that the best years are ahead of us, that God is concerned even for the simple things of our lives, and that there's still good wine for us to share. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we long to believe in your kingdom where even the little things are right, where there is joy and abundant life. But we know that our experience of our lives and of this world is that it's natural for nothing to be perfect, for even the best things to have a little sour mixed in, for things to go from bad to worse. And we long to name the miraculous presence of your kingdom, setting small and great things right again. We long to look and see your kingdom breaking into our lives and into our world. And so we pray that you would give us ears of obedience to be faithful servants, setting the stage for wonderful acts of the natural being made new again. We ask you to give us eyes of faith to see and name the places and ways where we have participated in the tremendous work you continue to do. We ask that you give us hearts to believe even the impossible, the unnatural, the miraculous, to suspend our disbelief and to know that we have the opportunity to taste and see the goodness of your kingdom. We ask this in your name. Amen.